Hey everybody, welcome to the Purchase Optimized Podcast. I am your host, Savannah Sanchez, along with my co-host, Dara Denny. And today we have a super exciting topic. Today we're going to dive into what influencer marketing is in 2023, the strategies we're using like Spark Ads, whitelisting to effectively use influencer content to amplify our paid social strategies. So just to kind of cue up this topic, one thing that brands always ask me is, is it still worth it to work with influencers in 2022? And the thing is back in the day, and when I say back in the day, I'm thinking like four or five years ago, the main strategy that brands would utilize to work with influencers were gifting campaigns on Instagram. They would reach out to Instagram models with 100K followers. It was all about their number of followers, pay them per post. Maybe they're putting a link in the bio and that was it. Maybe they can repurpose that photo or video for ads, but ultimately it was like a pay per post strategy. We've really seen that strategy decline over the years for a number of reasons. I think one of them being just the organic reach on Instagram is so much lower than it used to be. So getting that return on investment of paying an influencer just to post and and seeing that direct ROI was really hard to measure um, as well as just wasn't very effective. I don't know, Dara, do you have any thoughts on kind of the old way of influencer yeah, marketing? I think that that's really interesting what you said about like no long, the, the reach on organic just isn't what it used to be. And I think another element of this too, that's really fascinating is I think that influencers used to be limited to only people who had really big followings. But an interesting caveat to that is I think like over the last few years, a lot of people have become disillusioned with the fact that a lot of these followers are bots. A lot of these, um, a lot of the like product features that these in, these big influencers are featuring are paid, and not only are they paid, but they're paid a lot of money, aka Kylie Jenner. <laughs> Um, and I, I think that really this old way of doing influencer marketing is something that a lot of people over time have become a little bit more skeptical of, especially as it relates to really big creators and um, big influencers. A hundred percent. I think followers is now like, at least for me, when I'm working with influencers or content creators, I barely care about their followers. Like I'm not looking at what audience they have to, when they post it on TikTok or Instagram, like what, who they're going to reach organically. I'm purely looking at, at them for like how well they're, con how, how great they are at creating content. Um, so judging the videos for what they are versus the number of followers, because in my mind, I'm not even thinking about their organic reach. I'm thinking about how can I repurpose this for ads, whether it's downloading their video and running it in my TikTok or Facebook ad account and putting ads been behind it, then I'm choosing the audiences, of course. So it doesn't matter what the organic reach is. And the second part of that, which I think kind of combines like what the old like benefits of influencer marketing on Instagram was, which was having an influencer talk about the product and just the fact that it's coming from a real person instead of a brand makes it more authentic. So I think what whitelisting and what Spark ads have done on TikTok is bring the good elements of influencer marketing of having that social proof from influencer, but then being able to choose your own audience and amplify it to as large of an audience as you want and put as much budget behind it as you want. So you can get it 
enough reach as you have budget. Yeah, exactly. This is something that we experiment quite a bit with at Thesis. And I'd say that if you're coming, um, if you're looking at Spark ads and whitelisted content from the perspective of a performance marketer, this is something that I feel like is a new, like must try strategy. New in terms of like, I feel like it's really boomed over the last two years. But this is something that when I'm during the auditing process or the sales process with a potential new client at Thesis, I'm always checking to see like, have they done whitelisted content before? Have they done Spark ads before? Because this is something that really does have the potential to be a performance unlock for several brands and clients. And just to like put a finer note on it, like what essentially whitelisted content is, is being able to run your ads and run content through a influencer or um, creator's handle. So instead of just running through your brand's handle, you're actually delivering content and a message through someone that has potentially even bigger influence than you, or, um, you know, looking at like a smaller creator could just seem like a normal regular person, which, could in some cases um, be more trustworthy to your audience. Um, actually, that's a really common question that I get from um, from clients and even from other digital marketers is, do you have to use a big influencer or creator in order for whitelisted ads to be um, effective? Absolutely not. I'm, I've seen no correlation between the follower size of that influencer's Facebook or Instagram page versus the ad performance. It really does come down to the quality of the video that they produce. And secondly, I do think it's just the fact that when someone is seeing the ad on their feed, instead of the profile picture and the name being the brand, like whatever, blah, 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 soaps with their logo. Instead, it's Savannah Sanchez. Even though no one knows who Savannah Sanchez is or put any content creator there, um, just their first and last name and like a photo of them and the caption coming from first person. Like, I'm so excited to share with you my favorite soap. It got all these stains out, blah, blah, blah. And then having the video being like that organic UGC of them talking to the camera. When someone's going through their Facebook feed or Instagram feed, they're more likely to stop for a second and think, is this a friend of mine? Spana Sanchez, who is this girl? Is she an influencer? It's when they, when people are scrolling through their feed, and of course they're in the mindset of trying to avoid ads. If they see that the ad is from a brand name with a logo, then they may not even give you the time of day. Whereas I think it's almost like a slight trick of like, who is this? Is this my friend? And then they're like, oh wait, no, it's, like once they start watching the video, it's sponsored, but then they're at least starting to watch the video. So it get, it kind of buys you, I think, like the first few seconds of someone just wondering, who is this? Because they're seeing a, a post in their feed from some first name, last name that they've never I, heard of before. I will say user. that I've, we've noticed that for whitelisted um, video content on Facebook and Instagram, we do find elevated hooks just kind of across the board. I think it's anywhere from like five to 10%. We hmm. did a study on it for one of our clients recently, just because it was, it was something that we continued to see over and over again. And I want to underscore that too. You know, we've done whitelisting content with really big multi-million followers on on Instagram and really like small people that have sub 10k and the performance really wanes for both and it really does boil down to just a genuine testimonial from from your customer someone who genuinely loves the product and like wants to showcase it i think too it's 
coming back to just looking at your user journey overall in a more holistic sense. And this is why I think that as like a, a whitelisted ad is like a second touch point, not necessarily retargeting. Cause we all know that like a lot of times right now, like Facebook and Instagram is largely automated. But even if you have a completely broad audience and you're looking at your prospecting ads, a lot of times someone's going to be served one ad and then another ad, both in your prospecting audiences. That's just how it works. But what I've noticed is when you have whitelisted content inside of your core campaigns, alongside some of your branded content, a lot of times that tends to bring up the performance of your overall campaign because people are, you know, they already have some notion of, oh, maybe I've seen this brand around, but then they see an authentic testimonial of it. It's mimicking this user journey where when people discover you, they're going to do their own research about you. But what's cool about having this whitelisted content is you're bringing that authentic testimonial right into their social feed so they don't actually have to go out and search it. You're kind of doing that heavy lifting for them because, you know, whether or not we like to admit it, no ad, no like, no like user buying journey is going to be see ad, click CTA, and then buy immediately. Maybe that happens sometimes. Buy in both sides. I mean, I'm like, I've seen a couple ads lately for some fitness brands. And I'm just like, those leggings are cute. I'm going for it. I think when they're when it's like less than yeah, thirty dollars, exactly. that's when I'm like, eh. I'll try it. But for the most part, (laughs) like we are doing a little bit of research on those products, which is why I think like having that type of whitelisted content really does tend to elevate just your overall, um, your overall performance on these platforms. Um, I'm kind of interested from your perspective because I know you do a lot of buying too on TikTok ads. What do you see are like the major differences between whitelisted content on Facebook and Instagram versus Spark ads on TikTok? Yeah. What's interesting is that I see it perform a lot better on Facebook and Instagram and than like I do on TikTok. Though, that's right? the like, number one like thing. That was like flip-flopped like yeah. six months ago. I think it was because we were doing a lot of Spark ads and Spark ads just for context is Instagram or TikTok coming up with their own name for influencer whitelisting. That just means that and when they get served the ad on TikTok, it's coming from a user's profile. It's still sponsored. It still has a shop now button on it, but I don't know why they call it Spark ads. I, I like saying boost. I still say no. boosted posts. I'm like, I'm, I'm old school. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, I sometimes slip in boosted posts by accident. Um, so what's interesting is lately I've been seeing, and I don't know why I can't really explain it because from a psychological standpoint, I would think that the same ad coming from a TikTok creator would perform better than coming from a brand. But in my ad accounts, I don't know if it's just the way the algorithm is like ranking the ads. I'm not getting nearly as much spend and scale on the Spark ads on TikTok versus like our regular brand ads. But on Facebook, it's opposite. Like for all of my clients, when I create UGC content for them, I'm also providing them the whitelisted page to the content creator. What? So that every a week we're giving them bonus. two new ads. Jeez. I feel like... <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Fun. No, I was going to say... It's, oh, go ahead. It's so no, hard no. for... Uh, <laughs> for brands, I think, to like dip their toe into whitelisting. Like, I feel like it's, it's a thing, like, it, it seems like there's a huge barrier to it. Um, but it's actually not mm. super hard to negotiate these rates or even create these pages yourself. In fact, one of the first ways that myself and Thesis started experimenting with whitelisting ads is 
I literally just created like my own profile and used my own Instagram handle and was like, Hey, I'm already creating content for these brands. Like, let's just try it through my handle. Um, and it, it ended up working pretty well in many cases. So there is, you know, a lower risk way of testing this out. If you are already, you know, working with some content creators and they have this type of service, a lot of times, like, I think the, the newer content creators, like they won't be charging very much for this service, like 250, 500 for like a month of usage, which isn't that bad. I think it's worth it. At, at that rate. And I think a lot of influencers and content creators are being asked about whitelisting more and more. So I would say when I started approaching content creators about this, like a year or so ago, like they were like, what's up? Yeah. Like, I need a Facebook page. I need to connect to a business manager. So they were, they had no idea. I had to like kind of just go through the whole spiel of like, this is what it is. This is how it's going to benefit you and amplify your reach. Your post is going to reach way more people. We're putting our ad spend behind it. You're going to get more followers, more views. So I kind of had yeah. to pitch it every time. Like, this is what it is to make them comfortable with it. Where now content creators, like they, most of like the ones that are, have more experience are coming in, like knowing what it is. They have a Facebook and Instagram page set up for whitelisting. But yeah, I totally agree with your strategy. Like I have my own Facebook page specifically for whitelisting for my clients. I have one called Savvy Finds. So it's like Savvy Product Finds. Um, and I have a blog along with it too called My Savvy Finds. So what we're doing is instead of doing the ad through the brand page, we're doing it through the Savvy Finds page, which has the review and then either linking out to their website or to my blog where I'm giving the product review. So, so yeah, create your own Facebook page. I have another one called Savannah Jean, if you want to look it up. And then all the content creators on my team, either I'm using their personal pages to do the Facebook and Instagram whitelisting, or I'm creating pages for them if they don't have one already. Yeah, so, the finds by Nat, I think, was that's your OG one that I always looked at. Yeah, finds by Nat. Shout out to Natalie, <laughs> the true OG. We need to get her on the podcast soon. I keep telling yeah. her. I think I actually want to double click a little bit more into like how much whitelisting costs. Um, I know I had mentioned about, Mm -hmm. you know, working with like newer content creators and a lot of them are just going to be like throwing prices at the wall. Um, I've seen everything like from the lower Mm -hmm. end to like 250 per month to 500 per month or even like 2000 plus for like 60 days of usage. And a lot of times what I find when negotiating these agreements is you also have to negotiate a specific amount of time. Um, Because something to keep in Mm. mind is that when people are engaging with these whitelisted ads and you're using a creator's handle, that those comments and that engagement is going to show up in their feed. Like it's going to show up as engagement to their direct profile, not necessarily yours. So something that I always tell brands too, is they have to have their community management team watching this pretty pretty closely and watching those post IDs so that they can jump in with questions or they have to negotiate with the creator to also, um, you know, run point on that or answer questions. A lot of times if there's like a, you know, if the creator is already like a champion or cheerleader of the brand, like they're often stoked to do it for an extra price, but those are just like additional considerations that you're going to have to make for that content. But I'd say that for like bigger, like mid influencers, like up to a hundred K followers or more, a lot of this is still based on follower count. Like, unfortunately, like 
Which doesn't yeah, make any yeah. sense. But to I, me. I think that's just because like those influencers have been a part of like they they've negotiated more. They're like better negotiators at, at those rates, mm. and they've had more brand deals, and they're more familiar with the process sure. and, and whatnot. Like those those type of contracts are running anywhere from like one to two to like three k for like sixty days of usage. Um, and in some cases, you know, if if an ad really pops off, if God forbid, an ad should last longer than 60 days, which is like a unicorn in our industry. Yeah. Renew it. it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's not an expense to them. Like I think you could probably renew it pretty cheaply. Like, like, oh, can we get another 30 days or $500 or whatever it is? I mean, to them, it's kind of free money at that point. It's just extending it. I would say one point on pricing. And I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, I don't even know how much influencers cost Mm. like a one-time, like 30 days or even like per post, because the way that I work with my creators at the social Savannah, it's all like long-term relationships. Like a lot of these creators I work with every single week where I'm giving them new ads to film. And then a part of my pay to them is, and I also get access to their Facebook page. So it's kind of all bundled in together of I'm mm-hmm. giving you consistent work. I'm of course the best, easiest, coolest oh person goodness, to work with. <laughs> um, so I am. That's why I'm like, you got to, they, they have a really great gig because they, the creators work with me for multiple brands. We get the whitelisting access. I pay them on time. They don't have to deal with reaching out to tons of different brands and negotiating contracts and dealing with personalities. So that's why a lot of the creators I work with, I, I really do build those long-term relationships where they're making content for me for months on end or even some over a year. So I would say as a brand owner or as an agency owner, I always give this advice. If you can start building long-term relationships with great creators, that's going to pay off so much more than I need you to create two videos and I want 30 days of whitelisting access. I get at the beginning, like you have to test it out and see if they're any good. But I would say once you kind of pay their intro price, see see what I would just pay what they're asking. Just be like, okay, I'm happy to try this out for three ads or for a month and, and see how it goes. And then after that, I'd be like, look, like you're great for our brand. Like clearly our customers are resonating with you. Like we want you creating mm-hmm. like two ads a week. We want why is this thing access? Like, can we come up with like a monthly yeah. price to where you're consistently creating content for us? And as a influencer or a content creator, it's so much more beneficial on their side because then they they're getting consistent work every week. They're working with the same people. If you're paying them on time, if you're easy to work with, they'd rather do that than try to reach out to six brands a month instead of just working with one, but doing six times. Yeah. And I'll say too, that I, as a part of my role, like I source creators every day, actually, like right before this call, I was like negotiating rates with another creator. And like, I also don't want to spend all my time starting from ground zero, like on the agency side, like trying to source new people for every single client or every single brief that we have come across the door. Like, in fact, I think my biggest like challenge in, job right now at thesis is like trying to build up our creator network. Um, but it takes a lot of time and it, you know, we have so many different needs uh, across several different demos and industries and like, not everything is like as sexy as like beauty or skincare or whatnot. And so a lot of it like takes a lot of time and it's like a lot of sourcing, but being able to like develop those long-term relationships makes it a lot easier to when you're um, negotiating those whitelisting rates and like baking that in into the overall into the overall cost which i think is a good long-term goal mm-hmm. for like 
agencies and brand owners alike. Totally. And then they're learning your product. You're giving them feedback about what ads are working, what ads aren't. I find that like some of my creators, like we've been working on the same brands for months on end. And because they're consistently getting reps, like creating for this brand, seeing what works, what doesn't, every time the content keeps improving, instead of reaching out to 10 new creators a month and having to give them the brief, give them the whole brand story, the amount of time that takes. And then also, yeah, it, it just, it will take them longer to learn what works and what doesn't and the nuances of your brand. Whereas... I'm just, I'm just, I'm just such a huge proponent for these long-term relationships. And I think a big part of that should have like the whitelisting baked into it because then you can really get the full breadth of benefits that influencers can create from the content creation side to having their audience and using their page to amplify. Yeah. And I'd ads. say too, that if you're like a new, if you're like a first time founder or you're a really new business owner and you're listening to this episode and you're like, yeah, like I have a million other things to do besides sourcing for creators. Like you're just not quite there yet. A s- interesting strategy I've seen work across the board that won't take much time or upkeep is uh, actually creating a founder ad and then using your own ad account to go through that and like showcase more of a founder story. Um, we've done that a number of times at Thesis and it, it does tend to work really well. And I find that that barrier to entry for newer business owners too um, can have really good results. So it's just something that I think should be in every single media buyer and creatives toolkit because it really does affect the overall creative. And it, it's um, it's it's just something that's a really unique lever on all the platforms. So it's it's a must try for 2022 and beyond, I'd say. Totally. Definitely with the founder ads. I had a client, they made a testimonial ad of, of them talking about the product. And I told them, I was like, let's make you a page. Like, I'm going to make you a Facebook page right now. You're going to, we're going to, and so we named it like Nick, founder yeah. of X company. And so then when, and in the ad, he was like, hi, I'm Nick. I invented this, blah, 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 blah. So it was perfect for it. And we did find the same ad did way better coming through the yes. Nick founder of X company page versus... <laughs> Brand page. It, it's that simple. And it took me less than two minutes to create a Facebook page. And all you have to do is create the Facebook page, connect it to your business manager and boom, you're, you're running. So it's like a, it's, it's, it can, if you're a founder, it's such a low cost strategy, especially if you already have an ad of you talking to the camera, it's a no brainer. Create your page. Yeah. Right now. And if you also like have access to your, to your like business manager, it's super easy to get those permissions to your account. Like essentially you're just going to go through your business settings and like connect to your ad account. It is the setup is like less than 60 seconds. I just did it for myself recently for another brand. So definitely something to check out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Purchase Optimized podcast. If you guys learned something today, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any streaming service. Um, and if you have a topic that you'd like me and Savannah to discuss, please let us know in the comments or add us on Twitter. We definitely want to continue creating content that you guys love and what's going to be most helpful for you. So thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.